0: We're in the second week now of a series that we're calling uh, Broken Signposts, Uh, and you might be wondering what in the world is a broken signpost. Well, a broken signpost uh, are the clues or signs that are in the world uh, that kind of point us toward or help us make sense of the way the world should be, but these signs are complicated. Maybe they don't always work out as they should. And so they're the things in our lives that kind of point us beyond themselves, but sometimes let us down. So they're signposts, they're clues, they're hints, they're pointing us in a direction, but they're broken, because don't, they don't always work out as they should, or we don't experience them in all of their fullness. Uh, these, thing, these things are things like justice or love, spirituality, truth, power, freedom, and others. Uh, And so in this series, what we're looking at is seven themes, and we're going to look at these themes through a Christian lens, uh, these signposts, to try to help make sense of them, uh, try to help make sense of the world, and particularly God's activity in the world. Like, what is God up to, and how do we uh, use these kind of universal themes that have been common throughout all cultures and all history, look at them through a Christian lens to try to get our bearing uh, in today's world. Last week we looked at the theme of justice and how our concept of justice is often, um, is most often punishment that is equal to the crime. Right? When we think of justice being served or justice being done, it's often in relation to a crime was committed and this person experienced punishment that was equal uh, to the crime. However, what we see in Jesus, in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, is that God totally upends our concept of justice. Justice is not the perfection of our current system where punishment is equal to the crime, but rather God's justice is restorative. In that, God's justice seeks to restore people back into proper relationship with God, other people, and creation. And so that kind of opens up. It should expand our imaginations to think about what does justice look like If we were to think about justice, how does this person restored into proper relationship with others, with God, and with creation? Okay, really, really helpful, Uh, and I think that this is exactly what um, God is trying to show us in the Scriptures through the witness of Jesus about what it means to practice or to live out God's justice. Uh, so today I want to tackle just a tiny little subject, a, a theme that uh, is just we can easily cover in one, a few moments here, and that is uh, the theme or the concept of love. Okay, we covered justice real nice and tidy, right, in one week, and we're going to do the same thing here with love. Let me try to tackle this concept, of course, recognizing that we're just scratching, uh, scratching the surface here. So, uh, love. This one concept, this one theme in our world, has captured the imaginations of artists and communicators for generations. Uh, a look at the cover of any pop magazine will reveal what Hollywood stars are have fallen in love or fallen out of love, communicating essentially that love is a, 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 an emotional wave that you kind of ride up and then down, and whatever kind of happens along the way. Right? That this idea of love is communicated in a particular way as we look at pop magazines. A quick listen on the radio, you'll hear stories of love gained and lost and the angst that love can cause in this life. Fiction books love to tell stories of finding love and a good rom-com movie. You know what I mean? Rom-com, you're familiar with that? Romantic comedy. A good rom-com movie uh, makes us all kind of long for finding the one love that we were meant to be with. And these are just examples of romantic love. There's many examples, of course, of the love of friendship, the love of family. Uh, Underneath all of these things, though, is a common denominator. Um, One sort of central thing about love that has been true throughout history and throughout all cultures, and that is that we all want love and to be loved. We need to be loved. We want to be loved, we want to love one another, we want to know what it is like to be fully vulnerable, fully known, and still loved. It is no exaggeration to say that love makes sense of our lives. It's, it's the very compass, the glue that kind of holds us together. Uh, with love, our lives can feel rich and meaningful, and without love, our lives can feel empty and isolated. Um, many of you know that in the 90s, I was a huge DC Talk fan, and my love for DC Talk has kind of endured the years through the artistry of Toby Mac. So musical artist Toby, I thought that'd get a little more, I thought you'd get that like a little more riled up. Okay, uh, but so like musical artist Toby Mack writes this in his song uh, entitled Rich. He says, I want to be rich in love, rolling deep Loaded in friends and family, right? He's trying to redefine what it means to be rich, and he's doing it by saying rich with love and loaded in the friends and family. It's a catchy song. I encourage you you listen to it, but this, this hook, this play on words points us to a very important truth, that love is about relationship, right? Uh, love, in fact, requires relationship. You, the concept of love, the reality of love cannot be experienced in the world outside of relationship. In fact, we would only know the absence of love having experienced it in relationship with one another. That, that is, if we had never been in a relationship, we wouldn't know what we were missing. And so quite literally, love requires relationship, which we were built for. And so this In in healthy, God-honoring relationships with one another, we experience support, guidance, direction, gentle correction when necessary, right, that helps us live into our full potential. When we think about our best friends, our greatest friends, friendships that have really endured the test of time, have gone through the ups and downs, we realize that these are the people who, for all all of the messiness of life, have our best interest at heart. Right? They recognize maybe when we're going down a path that isn't good or healthy, they offer that little correction. They recognize and see when we're going through a difficult time, and they offer their support and lift us up. And this can come in the form of family or friendships or romantic, romantic love of a spouse. All of these things point us to this truth that we need love, and love requires relationship. So we know, just from experience, that love matters, right? We know that love matters. But love is also quite difficult. Love can easily be corrupted like when love of country that turns into national idolatry, when romantic love turns into an obsession. Love can be cheapened, like when we believe the fullness of love is an emotional wave that we kind of ride and fall. Love can also be quite confusing, right? I mean, love can be confusing, like when we, use, when we talk about our love for God and our love for our spouse and our love for ice cream, all using the same word, right? Love can be confusing. In his book, uh, The Four Loves, uh, author C.S. Lewis laments, actually, that there's only one English word for love. And so he, just, he goes on to write an entire book that there are actually four, at least four, distinct loves uh, that are one that we only have that one English word for the loves that he names are empathy, the bond of friendship, a romantic love, and then the charitable, selfless love that he calls God love. So this concept of love is broad. It's important, and while being difficult, it's also sometimes painful. Love is painful, isn't it true that those that love us the most or that we love the most have the most potential to hurt us in our lives. And so there's nothing, in fact, we all know this, I think to one degree or another, there's really no pain like the pain of a love gone wrong. Or there's no pain like the pain of standing at the graveside of one we have deeply loved. And so love is a broken signpost. It points us beyond itself to something far greater. And yet at the very same time, our experience of love is complicated. Our relationship to love is complicated. In fact, the scriptures tell us, and I promise I am going to get to the scriptures. Some of you are like, this is the longest intro ever. How long is this sermon going to be? Okay. Uh, We'll get through it, I promise. The scriptures tell us in 1 John 4, verse 8, that God is love, Uh, which is to say love is not something that God does, love is the very thing that God is. Let that sink in a moment. Love is not something that God does, love is the very thing that God is is, and so given our different ideas, given our different experience of love, saying that God is love can bring up all sorts of different emotions for us, right? For some, it can be a source of great comfort. God is love, and we have been well loved in our lives, and so this brings a sense of comfort to us, but for others, this may simply turn us away from God. To say God is love, we might have some concept of what love is supposed to be, but our lived experience of love is, is mostly one of pain, for which the, the proclamation that God is love is going to bring up all kinds of things for us. And so when we go to the Scriptures and we learn that God is love, there's a very important question that comes up, and that is, what is, God-like love look like? What does God-like love look like? And so, to help us make sense of this broken signpost, I want to invite you to churn uh, or click to your Bibles in John chapter 2. I want to begin reading with verse 17. Um, and if, for those of you that are kind of finding your way there, you will recognize that this, is from, this passage is from a story uh, that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago um, as part of our Resisting Rage series. So, in our Resisting Rage series, we looked at when Jesus entered the temple and he churned the tables over. And in that message, we learn that Jesus was participating in prophetic theater to critique the temple system uh, and, and critique the, the, what the temple system had become. You remember there's exploitation of the poor, there's not worship allowed for Gentiles, and so Jesus is, is kind of bringing a critique, a prophetic critique through this action of those, uh, this, this system that has become corrupt. Our passage this morning actually is the conclusion to that story. All right, so it's John chapter 2, and I want to begin not with verse 13, where Jesus enters the temple, he turns over the tables, he drives out the money changers, and then verse 17 says this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This. Is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a roundabout way to get to talking about God and his love and to help us get there as always we need to provide some context we need to get the landscape and so let's put on our thinking caps and let's return to the old testament story in broad sweeps to try to get our bearings as to what jesus might be doing as this whole episode in the temple concludes where jesus makes the declaration destroy this temple and i will rebuild it in three days so let's turn back to the old testament and look at broad sweeps now when the nation of israel was enslaved in Egypt, you might remember or you may not remember that one of the main reasons that Moses gives to Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go, do you remember this? Moses goes up to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go so that we may worship God in the desert. And so right at the heart of the reason for the exodus is so that they might go and worship their God in the desert. Now, this is really what they were looking for. What this is really about is that the nation of Israel needed, longed for, desired a place where God could meet with them and dwell with them. God would not go and, and make his home among, to an enslaved people in a pagan land. And so part of the reason for desiring an exodus is so that God could go and dwell with them in a land that they would call their own. And this whole process would begin in the desert. Okay? So the promise of God, and here's what I want you to catch, the promise of God in the Old Testament was not that God would one day snatch His people away so that they could go live with God somewhere. The promise was always that God would come and dwell with God's people. Amen. Right? Okay, so in the Exodus story, the nation of Israel was seeking release from slavery in a pagan land so that they could inhabit a land of their own and God could meet them there. Thus... The pinnacle of the Exodus story is not the crossing of the Red Sea, is not the giving of the Ten Commandments, but rather is the tabernacle is built and God's divine presence comes to dwell among the people of Israel just as they had hoped and planned and dreamed. Amen. The promise of the Old Testament is not that the people would go away to where God is, The promise is that God would come to where the people are. And the temple and tabernacle represent the commitment of a loving God to come and dwell with God's people. Are you with me? There is you like theologians. It would be difficult to overstate the significance of the temple tabernacle in the Old Testament because it quite literally represents. The promise of a loving God to come and dwell with his people. The temple, the tabernacle, was the place where heaven and earth, the divine and the ordinary, overlapped. It represented God's commitment to make a home among God's people. The temple was where God's glory and divine presence intersected with the world. So, with that in mind, Jesus marches into the temple, critiques the whole system, with, a, with an act of prophetic theater, and then says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days, and then people are like, what? This thing takes decades to put together, right? This is like one major Lego set, okay, to put together, and, and no, I'm going to rebuild it in three days, and then the gospel writer actually tells us explicitly Jesus was talking about his own body, But you can imagine, destroy this temple, and all the temple represents, you can imagine how loaded this statement was when Jesus made it. Essentially, and here's what I want you to catch, and we're going to return to this theme regularly, I think, throughout the series. What Jesus was declaring is that he is the new temple, that Jesus... That in Jesus, God has come to dwell among God's people. In Jesus, heaven and earth overlap. In Jesus, the divine and the ordinary take up residence. In Jesus, the living presence of the true God dwells. In Jesus, the promise of the loving God to dwell among God's people is enfleshed. I'll say that last one again just to make sure you get it. In Jesus, the promise of a loving God to dwell among God's people is enfleshed. In fact, the connection to the temple is why John begins his gospel with these words. And the word, that is Christ, became flesh, and if you look at the Greek, and then tabernacled among us. I mean, John is like, he gives us hints at the beginning, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then, then by the second chapter, he's just giving us the whole thing, right? Jesus comes in with this prophetic theater, destroy the temple. And oh, by the way, I'm the new temple. And I will be destroyed and raised in three days. Because everything that the temple tabernacle represented, Jesus fulfills and embodies including the loving promise of a God to dwell among God's people. Amen. So in short, Jesus is the embodiment of God's love and faithfulness to God's people. If we want to know what God's love is like, what is God love like, <laughs> then we look at the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus which is to say and this is really important we cannot formulate our ideas about god and then try to fit jesus into that we must begin with jesus and then begin to understand who god is are you with me we cannot begin with some kind of concept about God and then we try to tr- try to like see the ways in which Jesus fits into that. The witness of scripture is that Jesus embodies God for us. That Jesus is God in flesh, God's love and God's promise and God's commitment in the flesh. And so we can't start with Concepts about God and then try to fit Jesus in. We look at Jesus in order to formulate our understanding of who God is. Amen. Okay. So, Jesus' life is quite literally, uh, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, Jesus' life is love put on display. Jesus' life is God's perfect love put on display. So the entire story of Jesus' life, particularly as it's told in the gospel of John, is in fact about what love is like when God's love is lived out. And so Jesus confronting Nicodemus and offering him to be born again is an act of love. When Jesus breaks cultural boundaries and reaches out to the Samaritan woman, and remember the Samaritan woman is the hated other, we get a picture of love. When Jesus feeds the hungry, heals the broken, humanizes the outcast, performs miracles of all kinds, these are all declaration of love in action. They are the picture of what it looks like when the will of a loving God is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I submit to you this morning that love is never clearer than Jesus on the cross. Uh, the cross shows us a few things, but among them is this the cross shows us that when pure, divine, creative love moves through the world, evil forces will do all they can to put an end to it. Did you hear this? The cross shows us that when pure, divine, creative love moves through the world, the forces of evil will do their worst to stop it. But the cross also shows us that those evil forces will fail. that love is the only thing capable of taking on the worst of evil and exhausting its power through forgiveness and sacrifice. When we were thinking about resisting rage a few weeks ago, I talked about the cycle of evil or the cycle of violence, and we used that to kind of think about the cycle of outrage, how outrage you know if we're met with outrage and then we get outraged about the outrage it only kind of feeds the cycle uh, but that concept is actually built on violence and or evil that if we experience evil and we seek revenge out of that evil we've only really continued the cycle what is needed to end the cycle of violence or to end the cycle of evil is love to step in offer forgiveness and self-sacrifice thereby breaking the cycle. And this is exactly what we see on the cross, that the full forces of evil came upon Jesus, came upon God who was in Christ, and then he defeated those forces through forgiveness and self-sacrifice. And so the cross becomes the ultimate revelation of God's love for humanity. Remember, in, in the Four Loves, C.S. Lewis called the godlike love a charitable, selfless love, a selfless love. And this is precisely what we see in the cross. The cross is where the God of love is revealed in Jesus, who absorbed the worst the evil could do, robbed it of its power, and defeated it. So that then you and I, the people of God who place our trust in Jesus, who place our faith in the work of Christ that was done on the cross, can begin to then look at that both as an example yes, we should love like this in a forgiving, self sacrificial way, but also in a very kind of mystical sense, we can be released from the power of evil in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That this has for us both this kind of awareness. Yes, God has demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us, as Paul will say in Romans. So it's a demonstration, but it's much more than that, that this display of love can get in our bones through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be freed from the forces of evil at work in our lives. And that's the process of discipleship, is learning how to let go of these things, become free, as free as we already are in principle in Christ, right? So it's a matter of kind of living into the truth of who we are in Christ. So, it'd be easy to make the love of God sort of like this sentimental thing, like, just like we tend to do with justice, like... God's justice is the perfection of our concept of justice. We tend to be pretty sentimental about love in our culture, and so we would, oftentimes, it's really easy when talking about the love of God to over-sentimentalize over-sentiment, it. I didn't think I would ever get that out. <laughs> right? And I want to say, like, rather than just being like this sentimental thing, there's this, there's this strength, there's this power to the love of God at work in the world. That love actually has sort of forcible influence in the world. Now, of course, this is a broken signpost, right? And so in the meantime, we need things like law enforcement that do really good and important work and who will actually go and run toward trouble rather than running away from it so that they might help to protect others, right? This is a good and beautiful thing. But recognizing what ultimately in God's new creation, this cycle will be broken and has been broken in principle by the love that is revealed to us in Christ. Okay. So what are we to make of all this? A couple of things. And these are not earth-shattering observations. These are rather reminders, and uh, things that I just want to declare over us today. And the, and the first one is to find great rest in the truth that God loves you. And this, there's this thing about the love of God. It is, at the very same time, universal and very specific. That God's love covers all of creation, that God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. These are big, kind of cosmic-sized ideas, and yet these big ideas have very specific application to you. And by you, I mean y'all and you personal you, individual you, that God has a deep, tremendous love for you. That when we experience true, authentic, beautiful love in relationship to one another, it might be the good and healthy love of a parent toward a child, it might be a friend, it might be another family member, it might be the love of a spouse However we experience love in human relationship with one another is an expression and extension of God's love for each one of us. Amen? And so I want you to know today very specifically that God loves you. The second observation is that we are then invited to help demonstrate, embody, and share this great love with others. And this can come in a whole number of ways. It can come through simple acts of love and kindness. It could be through really committing to love our kids well as parents and navigating that. And when we don't do it well, asking forgiveness from your kids. And saying, you know what, I didn't love well in that situation. Forgive me. It could be being committing to being a good friend, a good parent, a good a, a, a good child to our parents. Like it could be all of these kind of ways. A, a good spouse, like it could be in very kind of simple, concrete ways like that. But it also could be more about like posture of our hearts. It could be about like the posture of the church toward the world. And so, you know, do we as Christians focus in on and become obsessed with the sin and evil that we see in the world? Or do we as Christians recognize that, name that when we see it, but also bear witness to the fact that our story begins with our God created and it was good. That there's something inherently good and beautiful and that this life and this world is this gift to us that is just radiating with beauty, right? And so it can come in a whole number of ways, but what I want us to recognize is that for all the brokenness of the ways that we experience love in the world, for all the ways that love can hurt us and cause us pain, I want us first to see the truest, most authentic, most beautiful picture of love, which is Jesus on the cross. But let's not isolate the love of Jesus just to the cross. Let's expand our imaginations to see that the, the quite literally the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus are all about demonstrating God's love. This is all love on display. So then, coming out of that, may we come to see... That God loves us. God loves you. You ever done this? I've done this a lot. Like somebody else's life is a wreck and they're making all kinds of bad decisions and they're just really having a difficult time and you you go in and you remind them, you know, God is a God of love and He can restore and this is a beautiful thing and, and God loves you right where you're at and then maybe your life becomes a wreck and you start making some bad decisions and you say, God doesn't love me. Right? What we want and what we know to be true of other people, we often don't recognize as being true of ourselves. And so, know today and rest in the beautiful truth that God loves you, and that we are invited then to participate in God's love. Of course, there's much more to be said about the subject of love, but hopefully that gets us started. And this, this concept of Jesus as the new temple, is, we're going to return to it next week for sure, and I, th- I think multiple times throughout the series. Um, it's an important concept to understand. And so let's um, not only get it in our minds, but uh, get it in our hearts so that we might be able to hear and to understand God's word and God's truth for us. Let me say a word of prayer, and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Mm-hmm. God who is a God of love, who has revealed to us your person, your character, and in fact, the nature of your love in the person of Jesus Christ. My prayer and our prayer today is that we would, through the power of your Spirit, not just have a head concept of an idealized love, But that we, in these moments and as we gather around your table, would in fact experience that we would feel, that we would come to know your love for us. And God, I recognize that there may be some in this room today that... That for them, this needs to be a personal thing, a personal experience, an overwhelming sense of accept that God has accepted them. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and that we would not just be reminded, but that we would come to know and experience your great love for us. And also God, motivate us, give us courage, give us wisdom and insight of what it means to embody your love in the world. To be people who, whose posture toward the world is one where we call out and we recognize and we name sin when we see it, but maybe we also name beauty and goodness and the gift of life. And so God, help us. We confess today that working this all out is a journey, it's a a lifelong journey of of new awareness, of of new application, of new ways of thinking, new ways of being. And so God, uh, give us grace and help us to give ourselves grace along the way. And I pray for your church. The Capital C Church. Yes, Emmaus Road included, but the Capital C Church, that we would be a people. Having experienced God in our midst in Jesus Christ and now God in our midst and in us through the power of the Spirit, that we might then faithfully embody God and the love of God in the world. So be with us, we pray, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.